Brethren, when, when Mr. Armstrong founded Ambassador College, he has one of the, as one of the mottos of the institution that he referred to as God's College, the saying, recapture true values. All of you are familiar with that, and that was uh, certainly something that we treasured. Recapture true values. He also said that the foundation of knowledge is the Word of God. And, of course, we believe that deeply and try to base the things that we do, the things that we practice, on God's Word. Now, Mr. Armstrong came to realize that the values of this world, of this age, were not true values, not what God considers virtues. This world is under the influence of the evil one, Satan the devil. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And let's read an interesting scripture that illustrates that point. Ephesians chapter 6. We'll read verse 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Did you notice that, brethren? Against the darkness of this age. And when you think about it, you realize this is a dark age. Now, not in technology, not in modern advancements and those sorts of things. Why, it's an incredible world today with the wonderful advancements that we have in science and technology. It's remarkable. And yet, in the lives of people <clears throat> who are cut off from God and His way, it's a dark age. It's a dark time. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we just set the stage for what I want to cover today. 1 Corinthians. And let's get God's perspective. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. <clears throat> Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So you see the things that this world values, the virtues that this world would focus on, are very often not God's way. The things of this world, the things that this world values are foolish to God. We need to have that understanding. Just going on in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 6, it says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, not the wisdom of this time, you see, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. You see, the values of this world are not permanent. They will not last. And yet the values that we're talking about, the, the true values that Mr. Armstrong referred to, will last. Now, brethren, this world's values are a mixture of good and evil. Now, you all know the story found in Genesis 2, where there in the garden there was the tree of life and the tree of good and evil. And you know how our first parents... Uh, under the influence of Satan, chose the tree of good and evil against God's instructions. Since that very time, the world's values have been a mixture of good and evil. There's a mixture of that, and that's what we see around us in the world today. Now, God's way, symbolized by that tree of life, is only good, which leads to life. 
Now, brethren, we, we're not the only ones to recognize that mankind has a flawed concept of what is virtuous. Many philosophers, many people who are deep thinkers and so on over time have realized that there's something inherently wrong. There is a problem. And, and so the problems can be recognized. I have here something you've probably seen entitled The Seven Deadly Sins. It was written by a Hindu philosopher, uh, famous in, in recent times uh, as the one who helped to liberate India and, and get their independence from Great Britain, Mahatma Gandhi, who died in 1948. He wrote, The seven deadly sins are wealth without work, pleasure without conscience, knowledge without character, commerce without morality, science without humanity, Worship without sacrifice, and politics without principle. If you think about those on each one of those things, you see that in the world around us today. We could spend quite a bit of time talking about each one of those. And my purpose is not to go into that today, but just to make the point that many are able to see that mankind has a flawed concept of what is virtuous. Yet this world doesn't have the answers. They don't understand what the problem is. And why is that? That's because they don't look into God's Word. They don't seek God's instruction for what is right, what is virtuous. Now, you might think, well, Crockett, this is very interesting. This is really interesting, and I agree wholeheartedly, but I can't change any of those things. I can't do anything about that. Well, brethren, there are true values based on Scripture that you can do. Things that will benefit you personally and help you prepare for your role as an example to this world now and in God's kingdom that we all look forward to. Now, what are these values? How do they apply to each of us? Why should we work on them in this life, this physical life that we've been given? Well, as we go through the message this afternoon, I hope to answer at least some of these questions for you, and, and maybe we can focus on it and have a little clearer understanding. Now, <clears throat> you may think of others. It's a big subject. You may think of other virtues, but I want to focus on three broad, very important Christian virtues. Modesty, temperance, and frugality. Now, that might sound like a dull subject to some of you, but I hope as we look at it and see what this encompasses, that you'll find it interesting and something that we can learn from. If you'd like a title for today's sermon, I'm sure you've guessed it already. Recapture True Values. The first thing that I want to look at is the subject of modesty. Now, what am I talking about? What, what, what does that refer to? Well, Webster defines modesty as freedom from conceit and vanity out of Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. So that's one aspect of it that maybe you haven't considered. The second thing in Webster's is propriety in dress, speech, and conduct. It also says to be unpretentious, to be sensible, to be constrained. So there we have an expanded definition, you see, from the dictionary about what does it mean to be modest. Now, this virtue is valuable in men, women, and children particularly, of course, in teens and young adults, but for all of us. For all of us, it's a very important thing. <clears throat> now, first, what does the Bible say 
on the subject of dress. We won't spend a lot of time on it today, but there are some important things to consider. Turn over to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. It's talking here in verse 1 to the wives. Picking it up in verse 2, it says, When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. What does it mean, chaste? It means the Hebrew is, I'm sorry, the the Greek is uh, uh, hagnos, H-A-G-N-O-S, hagnos. And it means clean, it means innocent, it means uh, modest. Uh, as we read, we'll see the emphasis on the inner beauty rather than outward uh, adornment and clothing and so on. It says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Let it rather be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Well, that's out of fashion today. <laughs> Whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. And, of course, the emphasis here is that they were to certainly look nice and, and to dress well, and yet the real emphasis was on the in, inner beauty, that gentle and quiet spirit that is so important to God and for us to be developing. Turn over to First Timothy 2 as we consider this. These are familiar scriptures to all of you, brethren. First Timothy 2. <clears throat> In verse 8, it's talking to the men, and then we pick it up in verse 9. It says, in like manner also, 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or golds or pearls or costly clothing. That means going over the top, you see. That doesn't mean that, that having a lovely hairdo and having jewelry is wrong at all. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that that's not the emphasis. Verse 10, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. It means not showing off, you see. Now, often women dress for others, you see. It's when the real emphasis should be that they would dress for their husbands, what's pleasing to their husbands. Or in a situation where the father's the head of the household, his daughters should dress to please the father and to do what's right in that way. So that should be the emphasis. Now, we have some ancient instruction about this that goes way back, that gives us a clue about what our emphasis should be. Turn back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22. Wonderful story back here in Deuteronomy 22. You know the story of Joseph. Joseph had been imprisoned on trumped-up charges and languished in prison, although uh, he prospered there and ended up running the prison. Wherever Joseph was, he, he seemed to be running it. He was in Potiphar's house, and soon he was running it, even as a slave. And then he was in prison, and he was soon running the prison. And after he was out, he, he ran the whole country of Egypt. So it's an interesting thing. But in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, we see that, uh, to pick up the story, that the, the Pharaoh had had a very troubling dream. Um, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong place. Uh, I'm the wrong story. Do <laughs> you ever get mixed up? We're going to talk here about a principle that we should have uh, about men and women's clothing. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. 
We'll come back to Joseph in a minute. This does not pertain to him. (laughs) Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Shift gears mentally. Forget what Crockett said. (laughs) A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, we have a modern uh, word for that. Transvestite. That's what happens when, you see, when a man wears women's clothing and, and, and so this sort of thing. It's a perversion of what God intended. Now, what did God intend? He wanted males to look and dress like men being masculine. And he wanted that women to, and little girls to look and dress in a feminine way so that there's no uh, gender no difficulty determining gender and that sort of thing. Now, that's what it was referring to back here, and that's what we should focus on. Now, does this can females wear pants? Well, sure, of course, in appropriate settings, and if they are feminine. Now, can men wear skirts? Well, yes, if, if they're in Scotland and it's a ceremonial occasion. <laughs> you see, that would be appropriate. Probably in other cases, no, you see, because it's not masculine. It's not masculine. So to to make the point, so remember the principle as we think about this, that men should look and act like men, and women uh, and girls should look and act feminine. And that's pleasing to God. He created us male and female, and that's what he wants us to have. Now, now can we get back to Joseph? (laughs) Sorry about that. Turn over to Genesis 41. Genesis 41, and as I was saying when I was in the wrong pew, that Joseph was in prison. The king, had the pharaoh, had had a dream that troubled him, and none of his uh, wise men could tell him what it meant. And so uh, Joseph was summoned from prison. We pick up the story in verse 14. Uh, Joseph said, but remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. So Joseph, uh, Joseph wanted out of that prison. Now, as we go on, we'll find that he came before the king, and before going there, he um, he changed clothes when he was summoned um, When he was summoned, 41 verse 14, Then the Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. Now, I don't know if they wore striped suits in prison in those days or not. (laughs) Probably not. But he didn't go directly from there to the presence of the king without being properly attired. That's the point I want to make, brethren. It was that the principle here is dress well for important Occasions, if you're called before Pharaoh, put on your best, just as Joseph did, for sure. Let's turn back to the New Testament for a New Testament example. Turn over to Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22, you know this story well. Matthew chapter 22. You know the story now that the kingdom of heaven, it says in this parable, is like a king who arranged for a marriage for his son. So we have a royal wedding, 
a, a, a tremendous affair here, a very important occasion. Now, as it goes on, those who were invited didn't come. And if we pick up the story in verse 10, So those servants went out to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So they went out and, and filled the guest room so, because those who were originally invited didn't come. Verse 11, But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, here we see this place was packed. And this person did not have on a wedding garment. His outward appearance reveals what was in his heart and what was the result. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He didn't think anybody would would notice, apparently. And so uh, they said, king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. So the principle, obviously, is that to dress for the occasion. The point here, the principle, wear appropriate clothing, swimsuits to the beach, jeans to the fair to work, work clothes when working, dress clothes uh, for those occasions that are important or significant. That's the principle, rather. And we live in a casual age, and that's not wrong, and yet still there's a time and a place for appropriate dress. And certainly uh, for uh, people who are new or this sort of thing. It's the sort of thing that we want to just make as a principle that we as God's people can do. Now, our apparel often makes a statement. It can be good or it can be bad. It can, it can send a strong message without saying a word. Let's see an example of that. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. Here's instruction to a young person in Proverbs chapter 7. It's written in verse 1 to my son. Drop down to verse 6. It says, For at the window of my house I looked through my lattice, Proverbs 7 verse 6, and saw among the simple I perceived among the youth a young man devoid of understanding. So here's a, a young man who's not experienced, who doesn't have much wisdom, passing along the street near her corner, and he took a path into her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. So here's this young man in the wrong place. You notice it was at night, probably late at night. Now, staying out late often gets young people and older people in trouble because after midnight there's not much productive effort that goes on. And often when people are out doing those things, it involves carousing and so on, and and people get in trouble. Look at verse 10. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. It's interesting. This is not the chaste conduct that we heard about a while ago. And she had the attire, that is the look, the, the clothing of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, and at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So we see the type of person she was. Look at, drop down to verse 21. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Now, certainly what she was wearing, what she was saying, uh, resulted in this young man's seduction. He gave in. It made uh, clearly uh, a wrong choice in doing those things. Look at verse 24. 
Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. So this is uh, admonition to pay attention, to look at this. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast many down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. The seductive styles and activities do lead people astray. And if you look about us today, brethren, we see a tremendous amount of that going on. Let's look at another example that you're very familiar with. Look back at Revelation 17. Here it describes a false church. Revelation 17. Revelation 17. Here in verse 1 it says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Describing a a church that covers many peoples, of course. A great false church. In verse 4 it says, The woman, this church, was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornications. You see, and it goes on and describes who she is. It's obviously the get-up of a harlot designed to impress and seduce. So you see it on the physical level, and then you see it in that way. Now, let's look at a positive example. We've looked at some negative examples. Turn back to Proverbs 31. And most of you know that's where we find the virtuous woman described. Proverbs 31 and verse 10. Proverbs 31. Who can find a virtuous wife? Her value is far above rubies. And so those of you that uh, have a wonderful virtuous wife, you know what I'm talking about. Can't put a price on that. Far above anything monetary, of course. A virtuous woman. Look at verse 21. She is not afraid of, you can read all the other verses about her different uh, aspects of uh, the virtuous woman, but let's pick it up in verse 21. For she is not afraid of snow for her household, for her household is clothed with scarlet. So she sees that her family is well clothed. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. So she dresses well. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So she may help dress her husband. You see the right sport coat, the right tie, the right, right color combinations and so on. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Look at verse 25. Here's the emphasis. Now we've seen the physical. She has these, the lovely clothing and the good quality and so on. But look at verse 25. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. So we see that the emphasis here, even though we have the physical, is on the, uh, the, the spiritual, the strength and the honor that she has. Uh, I want to read something. Uh, we have an article coming out. Mr. Rod McNair has written an article for an upcoming issue of the LCN, the Living Church News. And uh, as I was working on the sermon, I had some quotes. And when I read his article, he used the same quotes. And so I want to quote from Mr. McNair's article just on a few things. Uh, he talks here that, that uh, modesty and dress was one of the traditions that the Apostle Paul taught. And we've, we've looked at some of those scriptures as we talked about it. Uh, it says, God looks on the heart, but outward expressions, our words and actions, for example, reveal things about us on the inside. 
In the same way, dress makes a statement about the inner man or the inner woman. In his article, Mr. McNair asks the question, what is the purpose of clothing? To cover the body and convey good taste and discretion. In contrast, many fashions today are not designed to cover and complement, but to reveal and tease. Both from the cut of the cloth uh, and the style, they selectively expose and emphasize certain areas of the body. Mr. McNair says in his article, if we take our cues on what is good and right from the media, we'll be off track. Even being more conservative than the world is not enough. We have to honestly evaluate each decision, not on the rules of society, but on godly principles. Certainly, dress under Christ's rulership will change dramatically from what they are today. If we are preparing to rule in the kingdom of God, we must be applying the principles of modesty in dress now. Just, again, hitting the high spots in this low is a very nice article. Having modest dress standards reminds us that we are uh, to reflect God's coming kingdom. Now, he has some quotes here that I'll just read hurriedly, uh, and they're not from us. These are business people. This is talking about dress in the workplace, and it's talking about what's conservative and, and what would be the right thing. And I think you'll find them interesting. Uh, what are the, some of the guidelines employment advisors recommend for women? Interview experts counsel women to wear skirts or dresses that come to the knee when seated. Uh, one of the top ten mistakes, this uh, writer, business writer says, made by female interviewees is wearing skirts and shirts that are too short or too revealing. When you sit, it should hit or cover your knees. Your skirt should cover your thighs when seated, says this business writer. And this is for a business setting. And it seems that if it's appropriate for there, certainly we should learn from that. This writer goes on and says, neckline should be modest as well. According to career advisors, this means no cleavage. There are very few legitimate jobs where showing off your chest is a good career move. <laughs> One Texas school district issued this new dress code for 2006 this year. The display of cleavage is unacceptable. Low-cut blouses, tops, sweaters, etc., with plunging necklines are not allowed. And this is in a Texas school district, 2006. Overly snug and tight clothing can be immodest, and it talks about that. Um, uh, they also say in, in, a, in a publication called Modesty Heart Check, encourages women to ask these questions about their clothing. Does my midriff or underwear show when I bend over or lift my hands? If so, it's because my skirt or pants are too, is it because my skirt or pants are too low? Girls attending living youth camp are instructed to avoid, avoid wearing overly short skirts as well as tank tops or midriff shirts or the low-slung Britney Spears-style pants. Mr. McNair goes on and says that their counsel can help us in the church of God to see reasonable minimum standards that are also appropriate on our worship of God and church activities. Another reason, Mr. McNair states, and I heartily agree, another reason why women in God's church dress modestly is because of the power of example. Younger girls often want to wear what the older girls wear. And in earlier and earlier ages, how important is it that women of all ages set a good example in the church? In a world where media marketers seek to introduce adult fashions to younger-than-ever clients, it's more important than ever that mothers, older sisters, teens, and adult female friends in God's church set a good example for younger girls. And then the last thing from Mr. McNair's article, modesty is a tradition in the church, uh, as a tradition in the church can include dressing attractively but in good taste and propriety. 
the living church of God is committed to setting high standards in regards to modesty and dress, using love and patience to achieve it. So you'll read all of the article. There's an awful lot more there, but those are just things that really pertain to what I wanted to make. Rather than ask yourself, what is appropriate? What is modest? What would be pleasing to God? And dress accordingly. It won't be too short. It won't be too long. It won't be too revealing. Uh, it probably won't be avant-garde, but it won't be hopelessly out of style either. There is the balance. And certainly we can do that. Brethren, we don't want to be and are not pharisaical about this at all. These are matters that we bring to your attention. And now these things should be handled personally in the household, you see, so that we have the balance in doing that. Now, before leaving the virtue of modesty, let's consider a couple of other facets to this virtue. Our speech. Our speech. Turn over to, uh, actually, I'll just refer to it. Matthew 12, 34. You know it well. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's on your mind is what you'll talk about. It's, it's a, a biblical principle. Now, our instruction from the Apostle Paul is very clear. Turn over to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. This is a part of being modest. Colossians 4. Colossians 4 verse 6. I have a new Bible and the pages are still sticking together. Someone stole my other Bible and I hope that they read it. Colossians 4, verse 6, says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. You notice, not peppered with profanity. Seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. It says with grace. Our speech should be with grace. Now, if you look that up, and it means gratifying. It means uh, acceptable, not coarse, not vulgar, not suggestive. But our, our speech should be gracious and gratifying in that way. Back in uh, Proverbs 25, turn back there. All you Spokesman Club uh, graduates know what I'm talking about here. Proverbs 25. Proverbs 25. Verse 11. Here it says, A word fitly spoken... Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. A beautiful word picture, a, a beautiful uh, centerpiece on a table, as it were, with apples of gold and, and a silver bowl. And it's really, uh, the word fitly means words that lift up, words that are spoken at the right time and in the right way to help others, to encourage others, to bolster others. A word fitly spoken. It's important. Another aspect as we think about modesty is our conduct. That was a part of the definition that I read earlier. And so families, I hope that all of you parents will teach your children good manners as they grow up. It's really important. And if you won't te don't teach them, they won't learn them. Good manners. Um, uh, good table manners. Uh, to look people in the eye when they talk to them, you see. To, to wait in line. My, my oldest, my youngest son, who's now 30, 
uh, after he'd been in school the first grade for about a week. I just couldn't wait to ask him. I didn't want to press, but uh, I said, son, what, what have you learned? He thought for a little bit, and he said, well, Dad, I learned to stand in line. <laughs> you know, you don't think about it, but little kids need to learn that, you know, that, to take their turn. And, and so to stand in line, uh, when to chew gum and when not to chew gum, uh, just basic things that, that you need to teach them. Again, uh, to say please and thank you and to show respect for older people. Now, you may think that's old-fashioned, but think of what it does for the children. It will open doors for them their whole lives, and it will bring blessings to them because they know how to conduct themselves. So teach them good manners. It's a part of being modest. Practice these things yourself. It's all a part of preparation for your role in the kingdom where modesty will be the rule. And brethren, as we live this life and prepare for the kingdom, I think it's important that we do that. Let's look at the second point that I wanted to talk to you today about involving recapturing true values, and that is temperance. Now, that's an old-fashioned word, and you might not think much about it, but what does it mean? Temperance is defined as moderation in eating and drinking. It's defined as self-control, being sober-minded, being moderate in your habits. Now, in a society given to excess, this is very important. Look around you and see the things that you see, how people conduct themselves in public places in eating and drinking and those sorts of things. It's, it's a remarkable, remarkable thing. Turn over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, verse 5. It says, Let your, in the New King James, let your gentleness be known to all men. In the Old King James, it says, Let your moderation. And they're both applicable, but I certainly want to emphasize, Let your moderation, your temperance, be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And he goes on and talks about that. It's certainly something that we, as God's people, should do. Now, we find... Uh, as we think about this, self-control, having the discipline to do that. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul gave a principle. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Paul wrote, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? We have a lot of sports fans here, and I'm sure you like track events and some of you may run in, in, in marathons, this sort of thing. So he's talking about uh, running in a race. But one receives the prize. Paul says, run in such a way that you may obtain it, meaning following the rules and so on. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it, he says, to obtain a perishable crown. But we for an imperishable crown. So they do it for physical reasons. And what I'm talking about doing today, we do for physical reasons and especially the spiritual reasons. He says, therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air like shadow boxing. He says, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. 
See, those who complete physically exercise self-control. You probably read about uh, professional athletes and those who go to the Olympics and the, the, the price they pay in physical training is, is remarkable. Uh, and they do it to win the crown. Brethren, how much more should we who seek a spiritual reward be willing to exercise temperance and self-control? Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. And verse 5. Here it's talking to elders, but it applies to all of us. Titus 1, verse 7. For a bishop or an overseer, you see, an elder must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable. We heard about that in the sermonette today. A lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, and look, self-controlled. You see, being temperate in that way, in all those ways. You can read similar words in Titus chapter 2 where it talks about men and women should exercise self-control. Now, God makes it plain that exercising temperance, uh, self-control is important. Uh, All of you know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. You've read the story. And we know that it was a degenerate time and every sort of perversion and so on went on there and God had enough and they were destroyed. Immorality and perversion was rife in that society. But there was more. There was more. Turn back to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16. And it compares here Israel, the nation of Israel, to Sodom. Israel 16, verse 49. And we gain some more insight as to why Sodom and Gomorrah went down. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. It says, look, talking to Israel, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So, do we see that? They were given to excess. They had fullness of food. The old Bible says surfeit of food, meaning an excess and an abundance of idleness. They had excess. And they were haughty, verse 50, and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. They were not temperate. They did not exercise moderation. And that was a part of it. Now, Let's get a proper perspective on what our approach as Christians should be to that. Wonderful parable back in John chapter 2. This really confounds the teetotalers of the world. Because Jesus' first miracle is described here. We'll just look at the highlights. John chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And I always like to point out they didn't crash the party. They they were there. They had an invitation. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And then it describes how there were six water pots of stone 
according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to fill them up, and they did. And he said to them, draw out some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from. So it's just a beautiful story of what happened here. Now, think about this. This was a huge amount. If you took the the 20 gallons and there were six pots, that's 120 gallons. That would be about 600 bottles of wine today, you see. Now, that doesn't mean that they were overindulging. It just means that it was a big wedding. (laughs) A lot of people. And yet, the point is that it was there, it was an important occasion, and so wine was a part of the celebration. It's not wrong to do that. And so, we enjoy those things on, uh, in moderation. Uh, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. That he should drink some wine. Let's take a look at that. You know the scripture, but let's look at it. 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. He said, no longer drink only water. You know, you should drink your eight glasses of water a day, folks. Do that. But not only drink water, he says to Timothy, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. Now, the operative word here is a little. (laughs) You see, not a lot. I have a friend uh, who's not in the church when I was in business back in Arkansas, and we were in a meeting one day, and um, uh, afterwards, uh, the, the, the CEO of this company said, well, we celebrate, let's have a drink. And so my friend says, I've given up drinking. And all eyes turned and looked at him because they knew that, you know, he, he was fond of uh, drinking. And so they said, you've given up drinking? He said, yes, I got a bad case of Chardonnay poisoning. And the guy said, was it the first or second bottle? And he said, it must have been the second bottle. Now, that's not what I'm talking about, brother. A little wine. <laughs> or you may get Chardonnay poisoning. You see, so the point is a little wine is what it's talking about, and that's what Timothy was saying there. And we should, uh, we should certainly enjoy it. A little wine is good. We know back in Deuteronomy 14, turn back there, Deuteronomy 14. Here in that we have the, the chapter that talks about uh, the festivals and, and uh, how we finance the festivals with our festival tithe. And it talks about how that can be used in Deuteronomy 14. And we'll pick it up in verse 29. It says, actually verse 26, And you shall spend that money, the money that you set aside for the festival, on whatever your heart desires for oxen or sheep, you see, for lamb chops or a nice steak, for wine or similar drink, and for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord, And you shall rejoice, you and your household. And we do that. And yet we do that in moderation, not overindulging, setting a good example, hopefully, for the the people in the community where we are. It's something that God gives to us for enjoyment, especially on special occasions and for the feast days. And yet we do so in moderation. We should always emphasize that, certainly. Now, with blessings comes responsibility. And let's look at the responsibility that we have as God's people. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 20. We're looking at lots of scriptures today, brethren, but they illustrate the points that I want to make. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Proverbs 20 and verse 1. 
Here's some instruction that we need to really understand. It says, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And very often when some brawl occurs or when there's uh, some terrible thing that happens, an accident or whatever, you may find that overindulgence, you see, uh, is, is the, at the cause of it. And the key here is led astray by not being temperate. So it is a blessing that we can enjoy, and yet there is a responsibility that goes with that. And certainly as God's people, we need to keep that in mind. Turn over a few pages to Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, just a few pages over. Verse 29. Proverbs 23, verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Who, those who linger long at wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. So it's here it's talking about those who, who overindulge and who are not using it in the proper way. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. If you drink too much, you'll hallucinate. And your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea or one who lies at the top of a mast saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. And when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? You know, it's like the person who wakes up after a binge and sees this tattoo and has no idea where it came from, you see, because they got bombed. And it's just not what we should do. And certainly I know that you don't. But this is here for a reason, brethren, that we understand it. And we certainly should could keep these things in mind. And abuse, the wrong use of something good can cause great problems. Now let's go back up to verse 19. <clears throat> verse 19, it says, Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Do not mix with wine bibbers or the gluttonous eaters of meat. It's saying choose your friends wisely. Don't run with a crowd that does these things. That's what it's saying. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. So the point is that we should, we should uh, to be careful who we're with and to set a good example and not go in those ways. Now, Jesus Christ gave a specific warning about being intemperate. And since Jesus gave the instruction, let's look at it. Look at Luke 21. <clears throat> Luke 21. Luke 21, verse 34. <clears throat> Picking up the thought here in Luke 21, verse 34, Christ said, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Therefore, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all those things that will come to pass 
and to stand before the Son of Man. Certainly, we want to uh, follow his uh, example and, and take this warning to heart and not involved in any of those sorts of things. Now, brethren, as we consider temperance, it really extends into other areas of our lives other than food and drink. Look at Luke 12. We're in uh, the book of Luke. Turn over to Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 15. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he said to them, Jesus Christ talking here, Luke 12, 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. It's talking here about stuff. We all love our stuff. You know, your stuff may be one thing and my stuff may be something, but we, we like our, our possessions, the things that we have. Things and activities and the accoutrements that go with it. You know, uh, they say the only difference between men and boys is the cost of their toys, you see. And, uh, you know, little kids have their toy trucks and big boys have their big trucks, you see. And you have the tools and, uh, you know, whatever you're doing, uh, you have all the things that go with it, the equipment and the trappings and the gear and the tack. And people get into that, and they have their stuff. Um, and, it, and it can get out of hand. Now, golf, for example, is a great game, but it can become an obsession. I've known people that were just had an obsession about this. Um, fishing and hunting, they're a wonderful outlet in balance. I have, uh, I have seen people neglect families and jobs and their children and everything to pursue these activities, you see. It gets out of kelter. It gets out of whack. Um, uh, collecting. Now, whatever it might be, I learned this from my children. Three of anything is a collection. <laughs> I would tell my kids, let's get rid of that. And he said, oh, Dad, that's my collection. <laughs> now, you collectors know what I'm talking about. Now, it can be antiques. It can be knickknacks. It could be guns or knives or cars or you fill in the blank. But certainly... Again, uh, balance is what we're looking for. Home and garden. You know, I, I'm an avid gardener. I'm not a good gardener, but I enjoy uh, doing that, particularly with flubs, shrubs and flowers and, and, and those sorts of things. I enjoy that. And then, uh, so, you know, some people really get into that. Decorating can become an obsession. So, again, finding the balance is, is what we have to do. Sewing and painting and reading and cooking, any activity that we do. We have to find the balance in doing so. That's really important. Balance is the key, and as human beings, it's sometimes hard for us to find and hold on to it, which is why Jesus Christ wrote, a man's life doesn't consist in the things that he possesses. It's important. Turn back to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Wonderful chapter that you're familiar with. An acrostic that contains so much about God's law. Psalm 119, verse 36 and verse 37. Verse 36 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn my, away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive in me your way. Things, you see, brethren, won't last. I was an insurance adjuster for many years, and I can tell you, just about anything you have will burn up or get blown away. 
you see, because things do get destroyed. Things won't last. They wear out. Uh, and yet uh, things won't make you happy and they won't get you into God's kingdom. Now, as human beings, we need things. Again, remember, we're talking about balance. Now, here's the tricky part. Turn over to Hebrews 13. Here's where judgment and discernment and understanding come into play. Here's the tricky part. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Paul wrote, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He says, Be content with what you have. And the tricky part is, uh, Be content all the while planning and working until the opportunity to better one's circumstances occurs. It's, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't grow and improve. It just means that the emphasis, the driving force in our life is not stuff. We certainly should grow and improve our circumstances. As we prosper, God will certainly help us to do that. Now, to be able to accomplish that, brethren, it takes God's Spirit. I won't turn there because you know about it, but in Galatians 5:23, where the fruits of the Spirit are listed, it, it tells you how you can be have this attitude that is required to do this. So, brethren, as we go through our lives, as we try to do the things that we do, as we go about our work and our play, <clears throat> let's use the things that God gives us uh, and use them in moderation, exercising temperance in all that we do. And now the third thing that I want to look at this afternoon is frugality. Now, again, that's not a word that you'll use in your coffee break this week, probably. It's just not something you may think about. It's not, not something that you might focus on. But what am I talking about? Frugality is defined as characterized by economy in using resources. It means to be careful. It means the prudent use of money. It means um, uh, the, the, the prudent use of resources in the sense of being a good manager or a good steward of what God has given you or what you earn. Now, there's a myth that the people of God are poor. Now, we certainly have some poor people. We certainly have poor people in God's church and people that do not have much of this world's goods. And, you know, there are various reasons for that. There are various reasons. First of all, in some areas, the economy, in some backward, undeveloped nations... Uh, it's very difficult for people to prosper because of just the circumstances they have. In some areas, the political climate or even the religious climate in some countries and areas makes it difficult to prosper. Uh, health or age, sometimes people have disabilities, and it makes it uh, impossible for them to do productive things or age, this sort of thing. Lack of training and education, which is so important. There's an adage that I think has, has some merit, and that is if you want to do great things, you have to prepare to do great things. And some have not prepared, and so the lack of training and education can keep one poor. Lack of motivation, that feeling of helplessness that sometimes people get into, and, or maybe they're reared in that way, it makes it difficult, you see. Uh, so that could be what Decisions that are made early in life. You know, the Scripture is plain. We reap what we sow. 
And wherever you are right now in your life, you're reaping what you have sown earlier. If you want a different crop, you're going to have to sow something else. And so what we have done early in life could do that. And now some people, some people chop with a dull axe. He talks about that in Ecclesiastes. Turn over to Ecclesiastes 10. They work hard, but they're not working intelligently or smart. Look at Ecclesiastes. Solomon was so wise, and he recorded this for us. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 10. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 10. It says, If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. And so just thinking about that, you can say, God would have us to chop with a sharp axe, to be sharp in what we're doing, to, 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 to be used. Those people who work with tools will tell you that a dull knife or a dull axe is dangerous. You say you want it sharp to accomplish your purpose. Now, brethren, God did not intend for his people to be poor. Look at Deuteronomy 18. Many years ago, I had this scripture done in calligraphy, and I have it hanging in my office to always remind me that God would have us to use what he has given us, and he wants us to prosper. Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. And you shall remember the eternal your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. This means that God gives us the power to earn a living. He says that right here. He gives us the power to do that. And certainly, he wants us to prosper, as we see over in the New Testament. Now, he's laid down some rules. There, there is a game plan found in Scripture to do that. Look at Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Here we have the chapter that we call the blessings and cursings, the blessings for obedience and the cursing for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, he said, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. So he sets the stage talking about that. Look at verse 11. And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. He said that he would bless us in that way. Verse 12, The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give you rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. So we, as we read that, we see that obedience is required. To get the blessings I've just read about, you had to obey. That was the, the, the uh, stipulation that God made. Turn over to Proverbs. Solomon wrote about this over and over, and it's recorded for us. I hope that you read these Proverbs often and that you do your best to put them into practice. They're wonderful rules for living. Proverbs 10, verse 4. It says, He who has a slack hand becomes poor. That's true, brethren. Look around you. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. 
So it's talking about the diligence is required. Putting forth productive effort. And as I said, chopping with a sharp axe. Look at Proverbs 21. As we just look at these important things that have to do with frugality. Again, being a good manager. Uh, accomplishing something with the resources that you have. Proverbs 21, verse 5. It says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. So planning is important. Do you have a plan? You don't have to have much to have a plan. Some people say, you know, if I had a fortune... I'd take care of it. Well, if you don't have a plan, you'll never have a fortune to take care of. It's just that way, you see. And some people say, you know, I just don't know where it all goes. Well, if you don't know where it's going, you'll never have anything. <laughs> That's what it's talking about here, having a plan uh, and, and not rushing into things without giving proper consideration and counting the cost. Those of everyone who is hasty, surely... To poverty. Drop down to verse 20. There is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. That means he's accumulated something. But a foolish man squanders it. Now, what I want to look at here is the, the, uh, squandering it, you see, means you don't spend it wisely. So it's important that we know about and think about these things and, and do that. Frugality, not being wasteful, is what this is meaning. That's all a part of being a good manager, being frugal. Turn over to Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27, verse 23. It says, Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. You may say, I don't have any flocks and I don't have any herds. Well, better than you have something. <laughs> Whatever your enterprise might be, your job or your business or your profession or your household, whatever it might be, it says certainly that you, you should know where it goes. You should know what's going on. It's very important that you do that. You do that. And we try to, to put these principles into practice in taking care of the resources that God gives us in his work. We feel that it's very important. <clears throat> In verse 24, it says, For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. Very often when people win the lottery or come into some other great windfall for money, of money, that could be an inheritance or whatever it might be, if they're not prepared, if they don't have a plan, if you check back on them a couple of years later, it's usually all gone. It's all gone. So it's, it's something that we as God's people certainly need to do. Turn back to Proverbs 14. Again, many, many Proverbs pertain to this subject, and I think it's important. Proverbs 14, verse 23. We've read this before, but I think it's important. Proverbs 14, verse 23. In all labor, there's profit. The old King James says, in all toil, there's profit. I like that better. But idle chatter leads only... To poverty. Now, you see, some people in and out of the church don't recognize opportunity because it's disguised as work. <laughs> I mean, work is required. Effort is required. And so we have to be prepared for that. 
Now, in Proverbs 6, I won't turn there. You know it very well. It's about the ants, where it says, go to the ant, you sluggard, meaning a lazy person. Go to the ant. Now, I call it the ant philosophy. What does an ant think about all summer? Winter. And what does an ant think about all winter? Summer. Can't wait. First warm day, it's back out working, you see, doing the things that it needs. And we need to do what the Scripture says and and consider the ant and be industrious. And brethren, I know that you are. Now, let's look at some, some principles, some important principles. First things first, always. Look at Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3. Last book in the Old Testament before do. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Malachi 3, verse 8 says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. He says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven. Here's a blessing. And pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So clearly set financial priorities. And I hope for all of us as Christians that we'll certainly do that around God's tithing system. It's a principle of success. It's a principle of prosperity that we need to look at. And Matthew 6, I won't turn there. Jesus Christ said that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I look around sometimes and I see people whose heart is not in the work. And based on that scripture, I know that for most people those that like that, it's a pocketbook issue. Now, in 2 Corinthians 9, it says that God loves a cheerful giver. We can't outgive God. And I know that you all practice that. And certainly, it's the sort of thing that uh, uh, we enjoy the blessings when we do that. Uh, we can talk about taxes. You know you're supposed to pay them. I won't go into that. But I do want to talk about credit, borrowing for a moment. Because our nation is on a binge, a credit binge. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs 22 and verse 7. Proverbs 22, verse 7. It says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. You might read over that and not get the import of it. But it certainly is a truism. And the problem, brethren, is not secured debt where you have a home and you have your equity and you're paying on it or an automobile in that way. The problem is consumer debt. If you can eat it or drink it, you probably shouldn't charge it. <laughs> you see, if, if it's the sort of thing, it's consumer debt. Brethren, uh, here, here are some statistics that I think you'll find remarkable. Average households in the United States have $8,000 in credit card debt per credit card. And there's over, usually over two credit cards in any household with interest at 14 to 21%. The statistics, and this is from MSN Money, a current article by Kim Kahn, 43% of American families spend more than they earn each year. And then you have the credit card debt. Uh, 
they go on to state here that that's about $18,654 per household in debt, not counting mortgages, because that's not that's secured debt. So this number's up more than 41% from 1998. The point is that uh, this debt is a crushing load, and very often people are unable then to even meet the debt service. So be very circumspect about that. And if you're in debt, get counseling and see what you can do. And remember, that credit card is a ticket to financial ruin if it's misused. It's certainly fine to have one. But you have to understand how to use it. Oh, in Proverbs 22, verse 7, drop down to verse uh, 26. It says, Do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge or of those who is surety for debts. Now, what is that talking about? It's talking about co-signing a note. If someone comes to you and says, I need to borrow this money, would you co-sign the note? And the scripture says here, um, uh, do not be one who does that. Now, be sure you have it to lose. Because if you co-sign the note, you're probably going to lose it. That's what the scripture says. If you can do that and you want to help and you can afford to lose it, fine. But you're probably going to lose it. Now, drop down to verse 29. Here's a principle that we need to understand as we talk about this subject. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown or obscure men. The principle, brethren, is excel. Become very good at something. And you will do well because the world cries out for skillful people. The world cries out for good workers. And if we do that, then we can certainly... A prosper, and God would have us to be prosper. Turn over to Proverbs 24, just a page over. <clears throat> Proverbs 24, verse 27. This is important. It says, Prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterward build your house. What it's saying here is become established in your field, in your business, in your profession, in your job, and then build your house, your family your home, your lifestyle, your fortune become established. It's a, it's a biblical principle. So, brethren, to sum up the virtue of frugality, obey God. Be diligent, that is, prepare and plan and work. The Scripture says, a paraphrase, of course, waste not and want not. Don't waste time. Don't waste money. Don't waste opportunity. And if you do those things then certainly, and you're keeping God's ways, uh, in time you will prosper. John, Third John 2 says, Brethren, above all things, I, might, I wish you might prosper and be in health. Brethren, it's our destiny to manage the universe. So we need to learn these things now. So there you have them, brethren, three important virtues that we as Christians should be working on as we work and as we play and as we do all the things that we have the opportunity to do. For if we practice modesty, temperance, and frugality, we will be a light to this world that cannot be hid.